0: Okay, so we are in, we're closing up this Encounters with Jesus series. If you are just joining us, this is our last night in the series. We've been walking through just the Gospels and specifically looking at different encounters that Jesus has with people and, and kind of asking this question, what, what is it that happens? What is it that he is doing? What's he saying? What's he teaching? What is the outcome? How does that, how does that have significance in our life? And so for the last night of the table, we're going to look at the last night that the, that the disciples had with Jesus, okay? So I want you to imagine that. Imagine you've been, you've been with Jesus for three years. You, you've finally been convinced that He's the Messiah. He's the coming King. You've seen Him teach with authority. You've seen Him heal diseases and sicknesses. You've, you've seen Him have command over over the wind, wind and the waves, over demons. And then as you've been with him, you've had this growing excitement that, that finally with Jesus, with the, with the Messiah, you're going to over, overthrow the Roman government and, and finally get out from underneath this oppressive government and, and be put back in Israel's rightful place on top. And so all this is happening and then, and then all of a sudden, you witness him being betrayed and arrested, accused and condemned, beaten and crucified. And just when it seemed all hope was lost, he rises from the dead and he conquers the grave in power and in victory. And so imagine the emotional roller coaster that this would have taken you on. And then he appears to. To several disciples over a period of 40 days and he's teaching about the kingdom and the whole time they're thinking here we go this is when it happens and think Jesus now he's better than ever because he now he, he just proved that he can't be stopped that he can't die so I wonder if they're thinking and I think they're thinking like they've had to have moments where they're wondering like what is the point of all of this and, and it seems to be pointing to this, this conquering king that's coming, this David-like king that's coming to rule and to reign physically on earth. But Jesus, all along, had been teaching them, had been showing them the point. And so I want to, I before we read our text, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, starting one through 1 through 9. But before we go there... I want to read a couple passages to kind of lay a backdrop to this, this text in Acts. So here, so the, the two passages are first one is in Matthew 9. You can turn there if you want. It's Matthew nine. Um, this is Jesus is in the heart of his ministry. Okay? He's, he's walking around from town to town, village to village. He's preaching in the synagogues, He's teaching, he's preaching about the gospel. He's healing every disease and sickness. And then notice what he happens in verse 36 in Matthew 9, he says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd, so he sees sees the crowds coming to him, and he has compassion for them, so notice what he does next, because it seems like whatever he does next is going to demonstrate the point. He says, then he said to his disciples, so he doesn't go to the crowds, he turns to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So what Jesus is saying there, he's asking them, he sees the crowds, he knows they need a shepherd, they know, he knows they need someone to lead them and to guide them and to and to to shepherd them. And he says, pray that God would raise up people who will go out and will carry on his ministry and his mission. So I wonder what you do with that text. I wonder how you respond to that text. Here's the second one. It's in John 16. John 16 is the whole time Jesus is describing the role of the Holy Spirit. And he's and He calls Him the Counselor. So listen to the shocking statement that Jesus made. This, this would have been shocking, I think. Because when I think about the disciples, I think how lucky they are they got to walk with Jesus and be with Him. Listen to what Jesus says in John sixteen seven. He says, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come to you. And if I go, I will send Him to you. So what Jesus is saying there is, guys, it is better that I leave and the Holy Spirit come. That's what you need to carry on my ministry and my mission. So think about that. Think about what you and I have access to in Jesus by His Spirit. Okay, so th- those two things I think help lay a-, a backdrop for Acts chapter 1. So now we're going to read Acts one. Acts 1, starting at verse 1. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read down through it and pause here and there. But when I'm done, it's really only nine verses. This will be quick. When I'm done, I'm going I'm to turn it back over to you guys. And you're going to spend a couple minutes talking about what jumps out at you and why with your neighbor. Okay, So you've got to be paying attention because you're going to need to talk about it. Okay. So here we go. Acts 1, verse 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, So this is Luke writing Acts, and Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So when he says the first narrative, he's referring to Luke's Gospel. So this must be the second narrative, Acts. Some people describe this as Luke, Acts. Anyway, Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you were here a couple weeks ago. Anyway, um, shout out to Drew. So he says, I wrote this first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So he said, your first narrative was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And this narrative must be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. But how? He's gone. Well, he will be here in a second. It's through his church. He's saying, this this narrative is about what Jesus will continue to do through his church. Verse 2: Until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also predestined himself, or sorry, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So then they had come together and they asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Again, all along the way, the disciples have this idea about Jesus. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my soldiers, warriors, no, he says, witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him from their sight. So take a couple minutes to, to talk with your neighbor about what jumps out at you in, this, in these verses and why. And then Drew will get up and close us out. Well, we began
1: this year with a dresser and that's how we're going to end it. Uh, For those of you who weren't here, we started on our first Thursday night study with a dresser up on this platform and and talked a little bit about that. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'm going to give you a a three to five minute refresher, or maybe if you were here but you don't remember much about it, uh, let me just give you a rundown of, of what we were talking about with this dresser. The idea is that this dresser represents your life. And all of us have a dresser, and and in this dresser sits a number of different drawers that represent the different aspects of your life. So all of us have these different categories or spheres of life that we have to kind of work through and arrange. Like, for example, you have here, you have uh, friends as an example, uh, the social aspect of your life. And each of us has to figure out where that that idea that category of friends or social living fits and so you can put that there on one of the dressers and and you also have all of us will have like school would be an aspect of your life your academic career the things that you're studying going to class that's one part of your life or or you might have family On here, and and you fit family somewhere on this dresser. And the challenge of life, especially as you grow up, is trying to figure out how we're going to arrange all of these drawers what things are going to take priority for us in terms of importance or, or the passion or the effort that we're going to give to certain things, the amount of time that we'll give to certain aspects of our lives. And, and our drawers, all of them, they might vary a bit. Some of us have five drawers that we're trying to kind of shuffle around. Some of us have six or seven, and we might have different categories in there. But all of us have some basic ones that are similar. And, and here's another big truth that every one of us at some point in our life is going to have to decide what we're going to do with this category, with the Jesus category. Everyone is going to have to figure out where they're going to put Jesus in their life. Now, not everyone recognizes that this is what they're reckoning with, that Jesus is the one they're trying to figure out. They may have a different uh, term for this category, this aspect of their life. They might just call it uh, their spirituality or their faith, or they may just call this category God kind of generically. But the truth is what you are wrestling with when you wrestle with things of faith, when you're trying to figure out what to do with God, the one that you are wrestling with, realize it or not, is Jesus Christ and what you're going to do with him. Now, some will just say, well, they'll just throw this category away completely and they don't want anything to do with it. That's, that's true perhaps, but that's still having to figure out something to do with this. You still have to make a decision about this. And our encouragement to you at the beginning of the year is not that you would take this Jesus category and make Jesus like the top or the biggest drawer in your life. That's actually kind of difficult to live out this kind of living where you're trying to categorize more time towards Jesus than other things. It gets a little complicated. Our encouragement to you is actually that you would make Jesus the dresser itself, not just a drawer, not just a category, but the very thing that your life is built around, the very thing that all the other drawers fit into, so that all these other aspects, your school, your friendships, your roommates, your family, your work, all of those are means by which you can serve and glorify Him. We call this at the table a gospel-centered life. It's one of our five things. The idea behind a gospel-centered life is simply this, that who Jesus is and what Jesus has done shapes every part of my life. Those things shape every part of my life. Now, here's the thing you need to know. You're already actually doing this. Everyone is already actually doing this. Not, not everyone is making Jesus the dresser, but, but everyone has something that is their dresser, has something that is their big purpose or goal in life, the one thing that every other drawer fits into, that everything else is a means towards. This is how we're wired as human beings. We are made. It's like in our DNA to chase something, to have an ultimate end, to have an ultimate purpose that kind of motivates us and moves us along. All of us are doing this, and our charge to you is this, that your thing, that's your dresser, that your ultimate end in life would be Jesus for two reasons. The first, most simple and basic, is this, because he's worthy of that. After all, if Jesus is the Son of God who paid for the sins of the world and then resurrected again and now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling over all things, ruling over the universe, it just makes sense that he should be ruling over my life as well. It just makes sense that everything else in my life would belong to him if all of creation belongs to him. That's the first main reason. But the second big reason why it is worth making Jesus the dresser in your life is this. He is the only thing that you could chase. Of everything that you could run after, of everything that you could pursue, he is the only thing that gives what he promises at the outset of your pursuit. In other words, everything else in your life that you're going to chase after, whether that would be success or money or power or a relationship, everything else is going to require you to sacrifice and run hard after it and compromise and and give your life over to chasing those things before you can actually attain it and then get what it promises. If you want to be successful in life, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to study harder than your classmates. You're going to have to set some time aside that could usually belong to maybe some relationships or friendships and devote it towards effort. You're going to have to kind of uh, bust your tail running after these things. And then after you actually get to the end and you finally achieve success, however you might define that, then you get to discover whether it was worth it or not. Whether what success was holding out to you was actually worth all the time and effort and energy you put towards it. The same is true with a relationship that you might pursue. The same is true with money. The same is true with whatever it is. And the dominating theme when you hear from people who have achieved their dreams, one of the things you hear over and over again is that it does not satisfy like they thought it would. Something we hear from many people who have risen to fame or have risen to power or have gained the wealth that they wanted. Jesus is different because Jesus pursued you long before you ever even thought to pursue him. Jesus, as Romans 5 tells us, died for us while we were still sinners, loved us that much before we even cared about him, and was willing to come and give you his life before you even thought on those things. And so you get, the moment you choose Jesus, the moment you choose to run after him, place your faith in him, you get what he offers to you. You get peace, you get eternal life, you get reconciled back to the God that you were made for. And this is the point of Paul in Romans twelve one. After Paul outlines the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, for about 11 chapters, he says in Romans 12, verse 1, In view of all this, therefore, brothers, he says, in view of God's mercies, in view of everything that Jesus has done for us, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to him. This, Paul says, is your reasonable act of worship. This is the reasonable response to one who has given so much to you. Here's the thing, though. We talk about a gospel centered life here a decent amount, but I'll confess that I don't always do a great job of defining what we mean by a gospel centered life. Like, in real life, uh, on the ground, in real time. What does it actually look like when a person is living a gospel-centered life, when they are using all the aspects of their life to serve Him? It looks like a a number of different things. It takes a a number of different kind of shapes. Someone who's living a gospel-centered life, well, that looks like, for example, a person who doesn't have to kill themselves trying to impress people and trying to prove their worth to others and to themselves, who's always anxiously worried about whether or not they are pleasing people. They don't have to look like that because they know that their value does not come from what other people think. It does not come from being successful or impressive. It comes from the fact that God loves them enough to send His own Son to die for them. And God has already proven that to them. God has already shown them that word, so they, they don't have to struggle to find that in other things. Gospel-centered life looks like someone who is quick to forgive because they know how much they've been forgiven by Jesus. It looks like someone who does the right thing, who obeys what the Bible tells them to do, not just from fear of being punished or, or not just so that they can feel really good about themselves because now they're a good person, but increasingly they do what the Scriptures call them to out of love. Because if Jesus has done this much for me, then it is, it's easy for me to want to, or at least growing easier to want to obey him in love. Well one of the biggest things that characterizes a gospel centered life is is that it looks like a person who is committed to the kingdom and mission of Jesus. That is, it looks like Acts one eight, which we just read to today that we are Christ's witnesses wherever we go. He says there in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, that wherever we are, we are witnesses for the Jesus who has changed our lives, for the one who has saved us. And that's going to mean a lot of different things. Uh, depending on your situation. What what will witnessing to Christ's kingdom and his mission look like for you? It's it's going to look different depending on where you are in life. Now, we could talk about um, this in a number of different ways. So for some of you, we'll just be real for just a minute and just kind of be straightforward with you. For some of you, A gospel-centered life focused on the mission and kingdom of Jesus is going to mean a radical shift in life direction. What I mean by that is that there are some of you here tonight who, who came to OSU thinking that you were going to be an engineer. You came here planning to be a teacher and that's what you've been studying for. You claim here thinking that you were, or you came here thinking that you were going to go into marketing of some kind, but but over your time here at OSU and maybe involved here at the table, you've begun to feel this nudge or this kind of pulling inside of you. Actually the word we use is a calling, that you've begun to feel this calling to do something different with your life. That your passions and your gifts and your desires seem to be pointing you towards something, something different. Something like, like giving your life to vocational ministry. That is, maybe, maybe for you that's serving and ministering to high schoolers for the rest of your life. Maybe that's where your passion is. Maybe, maybe you feel like God might be calling you to overseas missions work, to be a missionary somewhere, going to share the good news of Jesus with people who've never heard. Or, or maybe you feel this, calling towards you to, to care for the poor and the marginalized, like maybe this is something that God is placing on you, and you're going to end up leaving OSU in a completely different direction than you thought you'd be going. If that's you, or if you're wondering if this might be you, that, that being a witness or doing missions work or ministry might be a vocational calling for you, if, if you're wondering about that, come talk to us. We would love to help you process through that. But for most of you, that's, that's not the case. Most of you came thinking you were going to be engineers and you're going to leave as an engineer. Uh, you, you might be an engineer, I don't know, two, three, four years after you thought you were going to be an engineer. It might be taking you a little bit longer, but that's what you're going to do. You thought you were going to be a teacher when you came and you're going to leave as a teacher. And that's great. That is no less spiritual then going into ministry. What counts is obedience and what God is calling to you. But no matter what you're doing, you are called to be a gospel-driven witness in that vocation, as an engineer, as a teacher, uh, as someone in marketing or whatever else it may be. So then what does that mean? How do I be a gospel-driven witness as an engineer? How do I do that when I'm uh, working as a teacher? How do I do that in whatever vocation God has called me to? Well, you've got some time to be working through and figuring that out. Here's what I wanna talk to you about tonight in the remaining three, four minutes is just what it looks like to do that this summer. How do we, in the different places that we go this summer, live out the gospel, live this gospel-centered life wherever we go. For some of you, this will look like an internship that you're going to be taking this summer in which you choose to treat that internship as a mission field one in which you go to work every day with a Jesus-like attitude, all the while praying for your co-workers, praying for uh, colleagues, the people who are working alongside of you and who are over you, and, and being ready for whatever opportunities Jesus may give you to talk about your faith, to talk about the Jesus that you love, For others, it may mean going to work at a camp somewhere and recognizing that that the one kid in your cabin or there on the campgrounds who is driving you crazy, the, the kid who is crying for attention in the most annoying of ways, it might be that you recognize that kid and that you decide that you are going to intentionally demonstrate the love of Jesus to that kid over and over and over again, asking God to open up their heart to his love and to his good news this summer. Or, or for others, it may mean that sometime this summer when you go home, you're finally going to have that conversation about Jesus with that friend who's been on your heart, that friend you knew back in high school that you've been thinking about for the last several months and, and praying for them and, and hoping that, that you might have a chance to talk with them. It means this summer that you're going to be looking for that chance and you're going to be praying for that chance and ready to take it when you see it. For a lot of you, as you move back home to live under the same roof as your families or your siblings again, it's going to mean that you will choose to be a faithful presence in your house, making it your aim and your goal to each and every day lower yourself and serve your family over and over again while you pray for them. Offering uh, humility and love and kindness towards these people that you have grown up closest to, uh, for hopefully all of you, it will look like volunteering and serving in whatever church you land in this summer, investing your time in kingdom things while asking God to bless the ministry of that church. You may have noticed a common theme in all of these, in every one of these, I mentioned the idea that you ought to be praying for the people and the places and the organizations that you're around. And the reason why is because no matter what place God has you, and whatever small ways you may be trying to demonstrate the gospel to people through your life this summer, all of these things are going to be important, and they are big things, things that are too big for you. It is beyond your ability to change your friend's heart with the gospel. It is outside of your ability to open up your family to the good news by the way you serve them and love them. It's something that is bigger than you to try and bring the good news of Jesus into whatever work environment that you are in and to love people in the name of Jesus. But there is good news, and it comes from our chapter tonight. That is that whenever you go and wherever you go this summer, you do not go alone. You notice there in Acts 1 that Jesus tells them, after telling them that he has risen from the grave, after telling them that he has a mission for them, you notice that Jesus tells them not to go yet. He's just risen from the dead. He's just changed all of human history, and he tells his disciples, don't go. Stay. Keep your mouths shut for a little bit. Why? Why does Jesus say that? because of what he's promising to them there in the chapter. He tells them, you wait here until you receive the Holy Spirit. Because he knows that they cannot do what he's calling them to. He, they cannot be the proper witnesses to him. They cannot further his mission without the Holy Spirit inside of them. But once they've received the Holy Spirit, then it's go time. Then they can go out and do what he has called him to. Well, the good news for us is that we don't have to wait, that we already have the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to us. And so the very Jesus that you have encountered this year whenever you go and and you want to be able to introduce him to friends and family that that jesus goes with you he is there to introduce himself Through you, to the campers that you're working with, to the fellow interns that you're going to be with, that they will be able to see Jesus in you by the way that you live and you speak. So this summer, when you go out, we want to send you out with confidence that you can go forward and bear witness to what you have seen and heard this year so that the Jesus you have encountered would be encountered by the people that you are around we want to let you finish with just a couple reflection questions i'm going to give to you and you can think on these for a couple minutes before we close out in prayer first question will be this how would my life change if i let the gospel affect every part of it if i were to truly believe the gospel and let all of what jesus has done affect every part of my life how would it change the second question is what will it look like for me to be christ's witness this summer In the place that Jesus has me, wherever that may be, what will it look like me to live as a witness for him? Think about those for a couple minutes, and then we'll close out in prayer.